0: good morning to all of you. Um, we are going to be talking about, um, church as a family. So, um, what do you think of when you think of family? Um, I remember when I was a boy, there's a verse in Proverbs that, um, says that a brother is born for adversity. And, um, I remember thinking, you know, that's absolutely true. My brother causes me all kinds of adversity. And, um, and i wish i was an only child i don't know if any of you have ever wished that you were only children um but um you know as i've as i've gotten older i i am glad that i wasn't an only child my parents had six more children after me so obviously they weren't too disappointed right um, well who knows maybe they were just trying to get it right uh, so either way I had lots of times when I was bothered having siblings. I uh, remember going to the zoo and um, the zoo is um, a place that's a wonderful place full of animals. And it always seemed like my family went to the zoo when it was 98 degrees and high humidity. Um, and so we'd be walking around almost collapsing from dehydration. And, um, and, um, this was back whenever there were only three children in the family and, um, my parents would buy one drink for all three of us to share. And it's a wonder I survived, Um, but I did. Uh, So if you all never had the joy of sharing a drink um, with some people that you really didn't want to share with on a very hot day, uh, well, you can feel my pain anyway. Uh, But when I get together with my family now, I realize that I am the way that I am, Today, because the the brothers and sisters that grew up around me, and um, while everything wasn't perfect, I still feel blessed when we get together and we can talk about the memories of things that were fun and things that were stressful. And sometimes the things that were stressful make the most, the best memories. Right? You know, um, I think J.R.R. Tolkien said that um, that the that the wonderful days are pretty boring to write about. It's the the stressful times and the exciting times that we we remember remember the most. Um, But we're going to be talking this morning about the church as a family. And, you know, depending on the family that you grew up in, that may not sound like a good thing, or it may sound like a wonderful thing. Paul uses three different um, main ways of describing the church when he writes about it. So the first term that he uses is one called ekklesia. Um, and, um, you've heard the, um, the word iglesia in um, Spanish, uh, that's derived from that same word. Um, and it's a term that means assembly in Greek. So it means called out. It does not specifically refer to a Christian gathering. Um, but the Christians use that. They, um, Paul used this um, term a bunch of times. If you look in the New Testament, it's used about a hundred times. And usually the translators translate it as church. The second thing that he uses to refer to the church is um, soma. Um, Does anybody know what the word soma means in in Greek? Well, it means body. I don't know how you would know that unless you studied Greek. So um, I didn't know it. But this is a metaphor speaking of a local congregation and the different talents and gifts that are housed within the congregation. So we think about the body and all the different parts of the body that work together, and Paul is describing the way in which we all work together. And finally, he refers to the church as a family. And we see this not only as um, ways in which he describes it, but also the terms he uses in addressing um the people that he's writing to. He uses terms like brothers, father, inheritance, sons, and child over 170 times in his letters. And Many modern translations choose not to translate all these words. They'll often put pronouns in place, of brothers, um, or even just leave them out completely. So if you would look at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, um, it uses the words brothers four times in the Greek, In addressing an issue around someone in the church suing somebody else. The NIV only translates two of these as brother, and the NRSV leaves the term brother out of that passage completely. But Paul is telling the church that they are brothers, and that people in a family have a responsibility to figure things out without getting people outside the family involved. And I understand, you know, modern editors think that it's boring to repeat the same word over and over again, and so they try to make things flow better in English. Um, But the point is really that Paul wanted the churches to hear that their churches were family groups. Um, And this impacted them in three different ways, Um, four different ways. First of all, emotional bonds. So there's an emotional bond between people within a church group that should experience with each other that they don't outside of that church group. Second thing is family unity, the interpersonal harmony, and absence of discord within the church group. And we see this on this verse up here, right? Acts 4, um, 32. It talks about being of one accord and not having discord. And sounds perfect, doesn't it? Um, And yet we know that churches aren't exactly like that. And families aren't like that either. Um, families are not without discord, um, but there is an underlying knowledge that even when there's tension, they are still members of the same family and they're going to work through it um, and I was thinking about this, and I think there are three ways that families deal with with tense situations. Um, so these three ways are domination, distance, and dialogue so just to this is kind of a rabbit trail, but Domination is where one person just sets the sets the decisions, um, and often it's just the person who is just the most um, aggravating and you just you're just like well let's just do what he says or what she says because we just you know we're not going to hear the end of it if we don 't, so we 'll just do it um, Distance is avoidance, so you just you just don't spend much time with your family you get away from them and you just feel just you know actually tense whenever you just think about going to be with them. And the last thing is dialogue or discussion, we could say, where we sit down and we listen to what somebody else has. And at the end of the day, we don't always agree on everything, but we are still family and we love each other in spite of it and we're willing to accept each other. So emotional bonds, family unity, financial solidarity, it's a sharing of resources within a church group that take care of people who have fewer material blessings And the last thing is family loyalty. There's an undivided commitment to God's group that trumps all other relationships. And each one of these ways of talking about church gets at a different aspect of what church is. And I think Americans have a little tendency to be focused on the first two parts of these, um, the church assemblies, gifts of people, and not so much on the family aspect of church. So, we're individualistic. We think about ourselves as individuals, our relationship with God as our own individual relationship with God. And hopefully the church doesn't get in the way. Um, but maybe we need to ask the question this morning, not what can my church do for me, but what can I do to strengthen and encourage the brotherhood? So Jesus' hard saying, so... I don't know what you all think about when you think of Jesus' hard things. Jesus said a lot of hard things. um, But there are two passages in particular that people struggle with. Um, One is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. And it says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeing, seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And when we read this, it just seems like Jesus didn't respect his family. You know, here's his mother, Mary, who shows up, and he doesn't even step aside to to spend a little time talking to her. His brothers are there. And he's, he's just too occupied. And, you know, we'd say, well, he just doesn't value the, the important people. You know, who knows how many times Mary, you know, got up early in the morning and made whatever toast for him. And, um, and he's, he doesn't appreciate that. The second is in Luke 14, verse 26. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And I think a lot of times when we read these passages, we temper these statements of Jesus. We, we just say he's not saying to hate our families. He's just saying, love me more than them. Just, you know, if they're going one way and I'm going the other way, just just, just come with me. But, you know, we, we, don't, we don't really like the idea that this means that we're to um, to hate our family. But the point Jesus is making here is that he is calling us to a new family. This new family takes precedence over everything else. Jesus is our brother. God is our father. And we will do whatever we need to fit into that family, even if it means a separation from other families that we have, other blood bonds that we have. And I don't think we understand this because, you know, when you look around, you probably see some relatives of of yours. Um, But for the early Christians, this was a decision that they were making to separate themselves from their family. If you go to an Islamic country today and somebody makes a decision to choose to follow Jesus, they are separated from their families. Their family may not eat with them again. They may actually be persecuted because of that decision. The same if you would go to an Orthodox Jewish family. They cannot accept the fact that somebody has chosen to follow Jesus. When Apostle Paul chose to become a Christian, he couldn't go home for Thanksgiving anymore. Of course, they didn't have Thanksgiving, but that's beside the point. The point is that it separated him from his earthly family. And at best, there was an uneasy tension between these early Christians and their biological families. Um, and more often than not, there was just flat-out antagonism. You are destroying what we believe in, what we grew up with. What does this mean? And Jesus is saying, you have a new family. It's not too strong to say that Jesus was saying that we have a responsibility first to him, followed by responsibility to our spiritual community, our spiritual family. Americans are individualistic. That means they don't want someone else, except maybe God, telling them what to do. On the other hand, I think that Scripture says that except for occasional mission mission situations, we need a body of believers around us. Family and community are extremely important for human development the hidden life of trees. How many of you all have read this book? My wife has. Okay. So I don't know. You, you all may want to go out and buy this book this afternoon. Maybe not. Um, but it's about a man. It's about a man. It's about trees. Okay. So, and, um, it's by a man named Peter Volheben. I don't know. I don't speak German. So he's something like that. Um, I remember when I was young, um, so I was probably 14, I'm going to guess, hearing a sermon where a preacher talked about this um, big oak tree that blew over in somebody's yard and looking at those roots that were just going down into the yard. And um, and he said, this oak tree had such amazing root system because of the fact that it was by itself. It was standing against the winds. And if it had if it had been in a forest, it would never have had a root structure like that. And maybe there's some truth in that. I don't know. Um, But in this book, The Hidden Life of Trees, the Peter, I'm going to call him Peter, makes the point that trees do better in the forest. They just do. So acacia trees... When they feel threatened, um, so like if a giraffe comes over and starts eating on an acacia tree, the acacia tree starts releasing noxious chemicals. And those noxious chemicals, um, the giraffes don't like, and so they move off. Um, But the interesting thing is that whenever that acacia tree releases those chemicals, all the trees that are downwind from it start releasing the same chemicals. And giraffes have learned this. They start moving upwind. They don't move downwind because they know they're just going to run into more of the same. Um, And so there's a sense of protection there. Um, When there are heavy winds in the forest, trees help support each other. So they may get bent over, um, but the nearby trees provide support, and it means that fewer trees get blown over in a heavy storm in the woods than there would be if the trees were all on their own freestanding. And the last thing, and this was probably the most interesting thing to me, is that trees, through their root systems, help other trees out. So Peter talked about girdling a tree. So when you girdle a tree, you're trying to kill the tree. And the way that you do it is you take the bark and you strip it off in a circle around the tree and the tree dies because it can no longer transport nutrients from the roots up to the leaves. Leaves can't send sugar down to the roots and the tree just dies. And yet there were times that he did this, that the tree continued to live. And you say, how could that happen? Well, there are webs of fungus and tree roots that connect from one tree to another. And the trees help each other out. They give each other sugar. They do enough to keep each other alive, even when they're going through extremely hard times, like being girdled. And there are different lessons we could learn from this. But I would take four things here. We are stronger as a community. We have healthier relationships with each other and with God because we're in a community. We are able to deal with struggles, whether temptations or hardships, better in a community. And community gives us an opportunity to minister to the needs of others. And these are all important. I don't want us to come away from this thinking, you know, I feel like my church community isn't doing these things for me. What's wrong with all those other people? The question is, when we see our brother or sister in need, how good, how well do we do at administering to that need? Do they need to ask? What does it take? Community in the early church. So the early church was communalist. Um, This is a church at Jerusalem. And we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So this is at the end of the first sermon. Peter preached at the day of Pentecost, and a bunch of people um, became part of the church. So suddenly the family grows. There says earlier that there were about 120 people in the upper room, and then suddenly there are 3,120. So it's a lot of people. Makes um, for a rapidly expanding um, family. So, you know, you've heard of people having triplets maybe, or I don't know. I've I've read about stranger situations than that. But adding 3,000 children at once to your family would be a challenging situation. So what did they do to address this? They said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is the earliest description of the early church. It includes a number of things, some of which we've already talked about. So it talks about them um, um, praying together, um, breaking bread together, and I think this is specifically speaking of of having communion together. They listened to the apostles' teaching, and they shared financially together. And the financial sharing was a big deal. It didn't always look like communalism. So, you know, when we think of um, communalism, um, you know, we think of like uh, um, Hutterites. Um, So Hutterites have real communes. They have a bunch of people who get together. None of them owns property individually. And they all just live together and they work together and they do stuff together. Um, And if you leave the commune, you have nothing. They may give you some clothes and um, some different things like that, but you're on your own. Um, but most of the early church didn't actually look like that. At the same time, they really did see that they had a responsibility to people. So there's a, a story. Um, um, this is a true story. Um, and we only know this because of a bishop named Cyprian. So Cyprian was a bishop in North Africa around AD 250 and we just know his response to somebody else's letter. So somebody in a community said, you know, we've got a church member who was an actor. And we asked him to stop acting because um, plays back in those days were pretty uh, raunchy things and they just didn't want him to be an actor. And he said, uh, he said, sure, I'll stop acting because I'm a Christian. But then you know what he did? He started an acting school, so he was teaching other people to be actors. Um, and we don't think that this is a good idea. What should we do? And Cyprian wrote back saying that it wasn't okay. That if it wasn't okay for him to act, that it certainly wasn't okay for him to teach other people to act. So he needed to stop acting. But he went farther to say that if he was going to have that school shut down. The church needed to support him while he looked for other avenues of work. And he said, if you all do not have the funds to support him, we in North Africa will foot the bill. We will do what it takes to make sure that this brother has the financial resources in order to continue in his Christian walk. And so maybe we see two things here. First of all, is that in this situation, the church had direct input into this man's life and his livelihood. And second, that they were willing to share the financial cost of a decision that they thought this man should make in his own life. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read verses 32 through 37. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged, belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I don't know that they had no individually owned property. I'm guessing that they probably did have some stuff that they owned themselves. Um, but the important thing was that they wanted to give as much as they could in order to see that people's needs were met. Um, we know that later on there was conflict because some of the widows thought that they weren't being cared for as well as some of the other widows. And I don't think this was a tithing situation. This wasn't a situation where people were saying, well, how much do I need to give in order to meet um, 10%, say, of my income? It was just more of a situation where they said, you know, I have this thing. I don't need it, and I want to give it to help other people. Um, if you all have read about early Anabaptists, they were accused by non-Anabaptists of being communal. And, um, and they were pretty quick to say, we are not, but we are willing to give as we are able. So the early church provided spiritual support for their members as well. So it's not just financial stuff. I think about this in terms of prayer. Um, so we've talked about this a little bit already, um, but we know that they had overnight prayer meetings. So when Peter was in prison and they were just beside themselves, they they got together and they prayed for him. And they were going to go all night if it took that. Um, of course, he showed up before they um, got done. So that was an answer to prayer. Um, in Acts chapter 15, we find the Jerusalem council. And this was a a situation where they were trying to decide what sorts of requirements to have of the Gentile believers. And the blessing about what parts of the discussion that we have recorded by Luke are that they're not focused on what would be best to ask of the Gentiles, but also not offend the Jews. Um, But they were trying to figure out what is it that that we can have that would be balancing something that would minister to both both groups' needs. Because the Jewish people had certain things that they just thought were terrible. And if they said, you know, Gentiles, you can do anything you want. Don't worry about it. Then that would be, that would just really offend the Jewish people. And so it's a question, what decision can we make that will that will have consensus? And they decided, you know, we would ask the Gentile people not to um, have eat meat offered to idols and not to... Um, eat uh, meat with blood in it. So they've provided spiritual support. They disciplined members. And I would rather not focus on this over much, um, but there's no doubt that there were situations in the early church where people got out of line. They were doing things that they should not have been. Uh, Matthew 18 verse 15 talks about the way to address a brother who is not behaving appropriately. Um, And If you look at it, it says, you know, go individually, go with another person, go with a larger group, and finally bring it to the church if they're just not listening. But the goal is restoration. Galatians 6.1 talks about the same thing, and it it says that the goal in all dealings with someone who is dealing with sinful behavior is restoration. Um, We don't want to see the church... Have things within it that aren 't um, that aren 't christ honoring but at the same time we want to see people draw closer and closer to jesus and I think these sorts of situations are very challenging um, um, at communion we ask ourselves um, if we are right with God, and you know we often say things like you know if I have anything in my life that that you see that isn't what it should be. Please come and talk to me. And yet I think it's hard to accept that when somebody brings that to you says, you know, I'm, I'm a little discouraged with this thing that you're doing or that thing that you're doing. Um, and yet we need to remember when somebody comes to us with something like that, that they aren't excited to come up to us and tell us that, I mean, unless there's something wrong with them. Um, and that even if the messenger isn't perfect, we can learn something from it. So they were focused on living holy and sanctified lives together in the early church. So Ephesians 5:25 through 27 is talking about husbands and wives. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And maybe this isn't the point of the passage, but Jesus wants the church to be without spot, to be blameless, to be as perfect as she can be. And we can't do this by ourselves. We need each other. And so how does the church today function as a family? Um, Let's begin with the statement that we need a real church community. We need brothers and sisters who hold us accountable and will encourage us when we're down. The Bishop Cyprian, who I mentioned earlier, said you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And just like trees, we will not reach our full potential. We will not be as strong as we could be unless we have brothers and sisters around us. It's a sad situation when you have a church group around you, a family group around you, and you don't take advantage of it. God wants us to know each other, and for us to be a real part. So what does this mean? So we share material possessions with each other. We've touched on this in the early church. 1 John 3, 14 through 17 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? And John asks that question, doesn't he? If you see somebody in need, particularly in the church family, and you have the ability to meet that need and you don't do it. Does the love of God really dwell in you? And I think he would, John would have said no. And we said, well, you know, it's sort of growing and do different things with that. Um, but it's more than just money, isn't it? It's it's time. It's it's emotional support. It's all sorts of different things. And I think we need to be careful because, you know, in Mennonite churches, there are a lot of family, blood family relationships within the church. And it is much easier to spend time and give um, give emotional energy to those people that we're blood related to. We grew up with those people. And, and yet Jesus is saying, John is saying here, you need to be willing to give to those people that you are not blood-related to, but because we are both stepbrothers and sisters of Jesus. So we share material possessions and other things that we have with others. Second thing is we share our hearts with one another. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 3, verse 4. But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or our or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could not endure it, When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So Paul loved the church at Thessalonica. He loved it with all his heart. And you can see just in the the way he, you know, his thoughts are almost jumbled out as they come out. He's just saying, you know, I just desperately wanted to come. I couldn't come myself, but I sent Timothy in my place. And I don't know that we're always good at sharing our hearts. Um, certainly not in a group setting. Um, and and we're, Mennonites are quiet. We're not good at sharing testimonies either, you know. Some churches, you you give testimony time and you can just hardly shut the door, but um, we're not quite that way. Um, but I think we need to be willing to share our hearts with at least one or two brothers or sisters. Let them know where we are, where our struggles are, where we feel like we've been encouraged and and listen to them as well. So there are a number of things that this sharing should involve. First of all, confession. Um, I'm not going to read it, but James 5.16 talks about confession. And confession is important. Um, The reality is that many people within the church are dealing with the same kinds of temptations and struggles that you are. We're just not very good at sharing it. Second thing is emotional struggles and pain. 1 Timothy 4.9-11. This is from the last letter that Paul wrote and he says make every effort to come to me soon for Demas having loved this present world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica Crescens has gone to Galatia Titus to Dalmatia only Luke is with me pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for his service so Paul was struggling with being abandoned here um, his doctor was still with him so that's something right but Other than that, he felt alone. And not all the people had left for bad reasons. You know, the only one who we read here who had left for a bad reason was Demas. But Paul still felt alone. And he wanted Timothy and he wanted John Mark to come and share with him a little bit as he was looking at an execution. And we hear his heart, a desire to see the church grow. But at the same time, he personally needed someone around him to encourage him. And there are a lot of times that we are struggling with things like depression or anxiety, and we just don't feel comfortable sharing them because it feels bad. We feel like somebody might think worse of us because they don't understand the mental health thing that we're dealing with. And yet putting a smiling face on a dark interior is not what God has put the church here for. We can be vulnerable here. We can share what's going on inside. Maybe not with everyone, but with someone. We don't need to look perfect. The opposite of addiction is community. I didn't make up that quote, but I think it is true. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Proverbs 27:17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And the point is that when we are struggling with something, it is not sufficient just to confess it personally to God and then go on to fall again. We need brothers and sisters who will encourage us, who will hold us accountable. The question you need to ask yourself this morning is, do you want to be free from whatever that thing is that you're struggling with? Do you see yourself as a slave of sin? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be free from that burden? And if you're struggling with something, you need family. We stay, embrace pain and grow beside each other. Robert Frost wrote a poem called The Death of a Hired Man. And maybe some of you all have read it. Um, But there's a famous line in that poem that says, Home is a place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And it's a poem that has a conversation between a husband and wife about a hired man named silas and he's come back home and this isn't the first time he's come back he's gone away so many times before and the the husband is just feels let down by him silas is not dependable he comes back whenever he's at the end of himself but the wife knows that there's something different about silas's time Silas has come back to the farm, but he's come back to die. And they had to take him in. And maybe we could say this morning that church is a place where you, when you have to go there, they have to help you regardless of the personal cost. More than that, church is a place where we help other people regardless of our own feelings. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the church creates connections that are just really important, and I think we undervalue it. Um, We value it in a sense, and yet at the same time, These connections are deeper than family connections. We won't have the same level of relationship with everyone within the church, but we need to be open that whoever comes to us, that we're going to to help them. And because of our setting, when we choose to join the church, we are not separating ourselves from our families in the way that someone in the Middle East or India might be doing But we do need to understand that our connection with the church is really important. And when we are saved, we are saved not just into an individual relationship with God, but into a church family. Going back to the trees that I talked about at the beginning, trees have no control over where they're planted. Some of them are planted in city streets. Some of them are planted in someone's front yard. And some will grow up in a forest. They just have to make the best of whatever situation they find themselves in. And I think it's easy to bellyache about where we're planted and think about the downsides of us here at Bethel. We're not what we should be. The other people here are what they should be. And if it was just an ideal situation, everything would be better. And yet, Paul said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's in Galatians 6, verse 10. The question is, how do we make the church a family when it isn't perfect? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the family I grew up in. And my family wasn't perfect. But when I was 14 years old, my parents got divorced. And it was really hard for me to deal with that separation and just a lack of connection with my father. And and in a sense, I guess, my family, which wasn't perfect, was much less perfect. And I asked myself, What can I do to help? And I couldn't do much. But I could do some things like baking. My mother was working a lot and and I would bake for my brothers and sisters. And I wasn't a good baker at the beginning. I'm still not a good baker, but it was something I could do. I could do a little bit of cleaning up. Did it make a difference? I don't know. But the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is how can I make Bethel more like a family? How can I bring a sense of community here more than what already exists? Because if each one of us does a little bit, rather than being upset about how it isn't a perfectly family, I believe we will have a growing bond of unity between us and a real brotherhood. Let's just have a prayer here. Oh, Lord God, you see us. You know who we are. And we desire to be like you. We desire to be a place where you're welcome. And we're not always the best at showing that. And I just pray, Lord, that you'd work in our church, make us who we should be. Help us to pursue that above all else.